All right, welcome back to another edition of Mormon Expression. We're here in studio uh, Fist in Your Face in Salt Lake City with another fabulous studio audience. <laughs> welcome, welcome. Um, and um, yeah, uh, we have our panel um, returning with the philosophy series is, is Adam, and you've got your philosophy books out and everything. I got notes, John. <laughs> I got notes. Look at this. I know, you, but you didn't distribute notes, so I had to. You, now prepare. you're sounding like Thane. Thane always complains <laughs> to me that I don't. But if you saw my notes, you'd be disimpressed. <laughs> is, All right. Is, is that a word, John? <laughs> if I use it, it's it a word. It is now. Um, yeah. Uh, d- no, I, I, won't, I won't go there. Um, joining us back again, Robin, you've done this more than once. Yes. Welcome to the panel tonight, Robin. It's good to see you. Robin's an old friend from around the corner, and um, it's great to and have I'm you here. I'm so excited to be back. Excellent. And um, Angie, is this the first time? No. What, what, other, what other one have you been on? Um, on your series, I did um, The Mormons Come to Dinner a while ago. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The ex-Mormons Come to Dinner. Yes, ex-Mormons. Uh, uh, well, welcome back. Tonight we're talking about Voltaire, and we'll get there in a second. But first, the news. But first, I've got to interrupt you. you got to turn on the on-air sign. Oh, fuck. <laughs> there it goes. <laughs> um, all right, well, uh, yeah, okay. All right, so the news. Uh, three news stories for tonight. First of all, the church announced that it's going to force all missionaries to buy an iPad mini that has been cracked and jailbroke by the church so that the, uh, you can't get any porn on it, I suppose, is the, is the thing there. Um, the church, in their statements, say this is an ongoing effort to um, help missionaries proselyte in social media, because that's where it's going to be at, um, going out and spreading the gospel on Facebook, um, which is really just the church acknowledging that, that door-to-door proselyting doesn't work, right? They're, they're flummoxed because they've put all their energy into this for so many years, and, I mean, let's, let's be clear, after 1967, after the Fuller Brush Company stopped making money, um, it was all about the missionaries, keeping them busy, cause, because if you really get a missionary, an, ex, an ex-missionary, do we call them ex-missionaries, ex-missionary drunk and find out what the biggest problem of the missionary is, it's the boredom, the crushing, soul-sucking, lack of anything to do day in, day out. I remember telling my mission president that, and I used the analogy of, I said, it's just like Groundhog Day. But the mission president didn't catch on the fact that Groundhog Day had come out while I was on my mission. He didn't ask me how I, how I knew that reference. But, but um, yeah. Um, it, but so it's not working. Door-to-door stuff is not working. And they've got to find a way to do it. Um, the problem is all you smarmy ex-Mormons are out on the social media watching these missionaries. And, oh, it's going to be a disaster. But they're going to have the iPad minis. Yay. All right. Um, the church, also in a line of missionary work, just announced um, this last week that the surge, um, we, we call this, um, in the business world, we call this channel stuffing, and it's actually illegal. Um, uh, the, the surge, um, which the church shifted the age forward, so they, when they did that, they had all the missionaries who were about to go out when they were 19, plus they had all the missionaries who would have gone out in a year go out all at once. Um, so there was a predicted rise in the number of mission, missionaries and then a drop. The church announced that they're going to peak in the fall at 88,000 missionaries, and the church says they're going to level out after that at 77,000. Um, so the surge, 
whether or not it worked or not is up for is up for um, debate. I know um, some missionaries tracked me out about some sister missionaries tracked me out uh, about uh, a year ago, and so I asked them how it was going. You know, they're in Salt, and I think they told me there was something like eighteen missions in the Salt Lake Valley, and just just the missionaries are everywhere, and I don't I don't know what they're doing. They're probably going crazy. Um, they, 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 I was on a conference call. They knocked on my door, and then I said, "Come back in an hour." And they came back in an hour, and then they wouldn't come in because I guess I looked too rapey. Um, <laughs> but there were two of them. I mean, they could have taken me, right? I mean, it was, it was kind of flattering a little bit, you know, like like I could take them both down. Um, but yeah, they, I think they were it's t- actually hugely bizarre that in my South Jordan neighborhood there are huge packs of missionaries together all the time. Like, I'm probably the only person they could really talk to like why are they there like what's going on well i mean i for one i'm just loving it because my wife and i we bought a house and it was this big fixer upper in the yard i was like this is gonna be a two-year project and the elders have come over like four times i mean honestly i really really appreciate it and they're the nicest guys but we've knocked it out in like two months i mean built a deck in the backyard got our sprinkling system up thanks to the elders coming over and helping out I remember as a missionary doing, being so happy when somebody asked us to do stuff like that because it's so boring. <laughs> Attracting is uh, anyway terrible. Oh, there, one more story um, from this morning. It is the eighth of July, by the way. Um, the church released its essay on um, the Book of Abraham. Um, I, I I read through it twice, <laughs> um, and I, I we. It's it's been asked. One of our very first podcasts, I think it was episode six. We we talked about the issues in the Book of Abraham. We haven't come back. This will be a good opportunity to come back and update everybody on the Book of Abraham and go through this essay in detail. Uh, the bottom line is the church is siding with the long roll long scroll theory. Um, of course, we now have the fragments from several places. We have the facsimile from the Book of Abraham. We have the um, the, I, I can't remember what the document is called where Joseph Smith actually did the translation and wrote the characters down. And then we have the, the scroll fragment. Um, what apologists are currently saying, now this is a, from the Book of the Dead to the guy's name is Horus or Hor or something like that. Um, so we know we can read it. It's, it's, an, it's an Egyptian funerary scroll from 2,000 years after the time that Abraham supposedly lived. What the apologists say, and I'm, I'm not making this up, Okay, what the apologists say is that there was a writing by Abraham that was two thousand years old, and by Abraham's own hand, that was attached to this guy's funerary document, and it's just missing. Now, if if you if you get so so this is what the essay says. This is the theory they say that we we don't even though we can read the Egyptian from what we have that if you had the missing piece, then it would be the Book of Abraham. Now, um, how and why it got there, they've, they've yet to explain. Um, I, and they, Let's read the last paragraph, because everything you need to know about Mormonism comes from this last paragraph. If, you, if, 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 you, if this really sums up all the church... We can read this and just close the podcast down. We're done. <laughs> Um, The veracity and value of the book of Abraham cannot be settled by scholarly debate concerning the book's translation and historicity. The book's status as scripture lies in the eternal truths it teaches and the powerful spirit it conveys. 
The book of Abraham imparts profound truths about the nature of God, his relationship to us as his children, and the purpose of this mortal life. The truth of the book of Abraham is ultimately found through careful study of its teachings, sincere prayer, and the confirmation of the Spirit. Uh, there, you know, they're basically saying you can't settle anything through intellectual inquiry. And notice they throw the word debate in. That's passive-aggressive. Um, and then the sincere prayer, because if you don't get the right answer, you're not sincere. You're not doing it right. And confirmation by the Spirit. Confirmation is a positivist term. Like, they're not saying that the, the Spirit will tell you the truth of it. They're saying the Spirit will confirm that it's true. And because you didn't pray sincerely, if you don't get that, then you're not true. It's just one big circular um, reasoning. And the, the idea they say that it can't be settled by scholarly debate, it can't because it's obviously plain what the book of Abraham is. Um, but they, they, they really get behind it, and they point out, rightfully so, that there's a lot of key doctor, doctor doctrines in Mormonism that come from the book of Abraham. The church really can't discard it. Yeah. I think this, and we should probably come back to this uh, later, John. I, I didn't know you were going to be talking about this, but what we're going to be talking about with Voltaire today really strongly ties into to, to why we can't have this debate, and it's that this is an, an emotional realm, and it has nothing to do about intellectualism at all. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Good point. All right, so that's the news. Hi, listeners. Mormon Expression is recorded live on Tuesdays in downtown Salt Lake City. Mormon Expression is going to be changing its recording time to 6.30. Why 6.30? Well, because we've launched our new sister podcast, Reasonability. Reasonability is going to start being recorded on Tuesday nights at 8 o'clock in the studio. Please come down and join us for one or both. Meet John, talk to the panelists, and take part. We look forward to seeing you there. Mormon Expression is a listener-supported podcast. If you like what you hear, please visit our website, consider making a donation, or becoming an ongoing subscriber. We can't do it without your help, and we definitely appreciate it. Okay, let's um, get into our topic for tonight. Um, Mormonism was not born um, born in a barn. My grandparents would have said it reversed. They would say barn in a born. Um, from there, from Southern Utah, uh, Mormonism. Mormonism came out of the environment that it, w- that it was in, right? And there was a lot of influence. And so, with this series, we sort of want to look at some of that influence, some of the ideas that impacted uh, Mormonism, for good or for bad. I, I've said before that the best move the church has is to own their doctrinal innovations rather than try to distance themselves from them, rather than try to turn themselves into a standard, average Protestant faith, because they're not interesting as a standard average Protestant faith. What makes Mormonism interesting is all this weird stuff. Um, And it's... um, Religion is weird in general. Um, And I think Mormonism has a lot of penis envy for the other Protestant churches, and they don't need to. You know, it doesn't need to be there. So, Voltaire. Um, Voltaire was a um, French um, writer, agitator... Um, philosopher, um, satirist, right from the middle of the, the Enlightenment. So the Enlightenment is also known as the Age of Reason and really refers to, there, there's, there's debates on when it starts and when it ends, but is really that, that 18th century thinking that really inspired a lot of our modern society. Um, the, the Enlightenment is really marked as a retreat from superstition, and you know, superstitious belief and belief patterns really um, 
came back in, as we moved away from the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire collapsed, as we went into the Middle Ages, sometimes referred to as the Dark Ages, although there was innovation and, and there was philosophical um, um, progress during that time, so it's kind of an unfair term. But there was a lot of superstition, a lot of despotic rule, and the two went together. So the Enlightenment, you, you, have, you, you, know, you have the Protestant um, Reformation, followed by the Catholic Counter-Reformation. And um, some call the, the Enlightenment the Counter-Counter-Reformation. So you have this, this Protestant Reformation followed by this, this, the Catholic response to it. And then the Enlightenment really comes after that. And a lot of ideas that we founded our country on and the rest of European society come from the, the, um, the Enlightenment. Yeah, I, I mean, you've got uh, one of uh, Voltaire's contemporaries, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Uh, he, he wrote uh, Liberty, Equality, and Fraternity. And the French Revolution was based on those ideals and much of the the foundation of our country is based on those ideals also. Absolutely. So the, the, the Enlightenment really sort of ends up with the American Revolution, and then a lot of scholars mark the end of it, either with the um, French Revolution, which was 1789, or the Napoleonic Wars, which were 1804. So, so right at that cusp of Joseph Smith being born 1805, and these ideas that, that really influenced a lot of American thinking um, so, for example, Voltaire himself was a deist, um, and most or a good portion of the founding fathers would have, fa- would have labeled themselves there. It was very, extremely rare at this time for anybody to label themselves as an atheist. Um, and Voltaire is oftentimes claimed as an atheistic um, a philosopher, but he himself would identify as a deist, and he threw some bones to Christianity, ever, ever, well, to faith, not to Christianity, I would say. And John, is, is, have you ever previously defined what a deist is? I was actually surprised to, to, to find out that my definition in my mind was incorrect. So well, let's say well, you have the right definition. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well no, but what I learned through, through study was I've always thought that deism was just the belief in God, just a God. It doesn't necessarily have to be a God that's participating. But more specifically, it is a God that did create and has completely removed him or herself away from our affairs entirely. And Voltaire compares this deist god to a watchmaker, the watchmaker that makes the watch, winds it, sets the watch aside, and then steps away from it, and the watch continues to function. Right, and, and for this, this scientific revolution, what that does is removes the theological debate, which we're still mired in today. You know, a lot of debate in America has to do around whether God exists or not. What the, what the deists and, and these um, reformers at this time did is they sort of pushed it out of the, out of the debate space. So they could say, we're not going to talk about whether or not there's a God or whether or not the Catholic Church is the true church. What we're going to do is we're going to look at scientific discovery and scientific reasoning in its own sphere. And, and so a lot of the thinkers at the time had, had clever constructions to keep God sort of on the sideline but not piss the church off. And, and able to move forward on Correct. those things. Just redirecting their questions. You're, you're asking the wrong questions. I felt like um, his belief in a God or eternal being or whatever is very similar to how I believe, which is that there's probably something out there, um, but also despising religion at the same time, although defending yeah. it, which he does. So. Yeah, it seems like definitely organized religion as opposed to you know adherence, which I think Candide is a good example as we move on. Excellent. 
Okay, so for, let's let's talk a little bit about the Mormon Church and the Enlightenment. We'll, we'll come back to these I- ideas a little bit. So the the, the Enlightenment had deconstructed religion, and then, and then we get out on the onto the plains, onto the frontier, and the church the churches had gotten ahead of the physical infrastructure of the church. So if you were living in I don't know York or something. You know, the church had been there and been established and had orders and monastic orders and buildings and property for thousands of years sometimes. Now, suddenly, when especially as people start pushing out into the frontier, and, and Joseph Smith was literally settling in Indian country when, when they went out to upper state New York. Um, and the churches couldn't move fast enough. So you have these, these folks who come into an environment where the, the religion has really been deconstructed. And you look at the statistics at the time of Joseph Smith about like how many people went to church, and it's less than today. It was a less religious time than we have now. And, and this is in part due to, due to this reaction to the, you know, the Crusades, and then you have the, um, the Inquisition, and people were just tired of it. They were tired of the church, they were tired of, of the kings, and they were tired of all these structures. And they were, they were revolting from it. But it, it sort of created a petri dish environment. It swung so far in, in America... And the people had kind of disconnected from religion in a way that, that led an open environment for crazy people to spring up and start <laughs> religions. Is that, is that too rough to That's say? That's pretty much what happened. <laughs> well, and, 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 and really this, this uh, period is sometimes uh, referred to, it's more in Europe than it was in the United States, but the Romantic period. So at the end of the Enlightenment, Romanticism sprung up at the end of the 19th century. And Romanticism is is believing more in intuition and feeling over over reason. So it's it's natural to see how, like you were saying, Joseph going out and, and preaching the gospel on these new plains to, to people that were coming over from Europe, these mm-hmm. these pioneers, that they maybe were being influenced by romanticism and would be more prone to to believe in him based on how they were feeling about it rather than if it made sense or not. Right, and I think that romanticism was this American love of the Bible because for, for, for so long, I mean, you have to remember, it's only been a couple hundred years since the Bible was even accessible. You know, if you wanted a copy of the Bible in the high Middle Ages, you had to hire some monks to, to like... Get in line. Tra- yeah, yeah, to transcribe <laughs> it out for you. So suddenly people were being introduced to all this weird, wacky stuff in the Bible that's really romantic. And you can see Joseph Smith just loved it. He just infused Mormonism with a whole bunch of Old Testament mythology. Um, and that's because the priests weren't around anymore telling them to stop reading that shit. They, were, they, were, they would just could read whatever they wanted, right? So, so that, that led to it. But to circle back what I'm talking about, one of the key ideas of the Enlightenment, and Voltaire in particular, was the idea of separation of church and state. And so in, in Europe, you had oftentimes really strong church control. And in England, you, know, you see it go back and forth and back and forth, and there's wars and a lot of bloodshed about that. But in America, you know, the, the, the deist founding fathers were sick of that and they sort of cleared the table of it with this separation but that suddenly gave the space once again for all these little religions to pop up and i think that's one of the areas you see of the 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 unpredictable influence of the enlightenment on mormonism because it gave rise to this space where a church could come up and mormonism needed that separation of church and state but they immediately always try to shut it down themselves Right? And we talked about that last week, and, and you look at early history. When they set up their own colonies, 
they 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 didn't like separation of church and state except for everybody else. For them, you know, it, 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 it wasn't there. So that's, that's where I see this interesting play off of the Enlightenment ideas and how Mormonism was born and sort of turned them all on its head. Okay, um, so Voltaire himself, um, I, he kind of tends to, to um, stand for three things. Um, really, freedom of religion, that the people are free to believe what, what they want. And although Voltaire was a sharp critic of the church and a religious belief and religious faith, and we'll see that when we look at Candide here more, he always um, was an advocate of freedom of, of religion, of the people should have freedom of conscience and be able to believe what they wanted. Um, freedom of expression, the, the idea of free speech and being able to say, to say what you want um, without fear of reprisal was a key theme of, of Voltaire. And, of course, the separation of church and state um, and, and these um, despotic... Um, Structures. He, he was always fighting against those. These are the, the three main reasons why he spent several stints in prison. Mm-hmm. Because he was fighting against stuff that people were not comfortable with at all. Yeah, for sure. And he, he chased all around all around Europe, um, running away from this place and that place. And, and uh, he was really caustic in his writing. Um, uh, uh, very much a provocateur um, trying to turn establishment on, on its head. And um, he was very successful because um, people paid a lot of attention to him. Okay. Um, so let's go talk about um, Leibniz. Do I say, did I say that right? You guys are, I, I, I don't know. I don't speak Leibniz. German. Yeah. Um, um, Le- Le- I think Le- it's Leibniz. Leibniz. I think. Leibniz, um, Leibniz, whatever. He was a mathematician and a philosopher. And he actually simultaneously invented the calculus at the same time um, Newton did, um, and which is quite profound. They didn't have any influence. They came up with the idea. Newton was a much better – he was an asshole and a big strategist, and um, he was able to garner a lot of the attention. But later we've realized some of the genius of, of Leibniz and, and, and what he was able to accomplish. Um, Leibniz has a philosophy that's sometimes called Leibnizian, is that a word, or um, optimism. Um, And it's a solution to the theodicy. The theodicy, of course, is the problem of evil, which is if you have an omnipotent, omniscient God who cares about us, why is there evil in the world? This is a question that's been plaguing philosophers and theologians for thousands of years. Actually, basically sense monotheism. Polytheistic religions don't have a problem with this. Um, they have a good solution for it. Monotheistic religions have a problem. And um, the early monotheistic religions in the Middle East solved it by, by proposing a dualism uh, um, in, in, in the universe. Christianity has struggled with that dualism because they don't like giving the devil his due. So they want God to be in charge and this archdemon to be there, but they don't really want to rise... The, the, the devil to the full theological um, power. So you have to solve this problem. Leibniz's solution was to suggest that this is, in fact, the best of all possible worlds. <laughs> so um, to, to go through this idea, and I, I, don't, I don't want to ridicule it the way Vol- Voltaire does yet, um, is to say we have all these human beings and the world the way it has to be. And if you put all that together, the solution is a compromise. So think about the company you work for. That maybe the crappy product you put out is the best possible product that your company could put out. 
because you have to deal with all the people who work there. And even though there might be an idealized better product, you're never going to achieve it. It's the best possible thing your company could do. So what Leibniz would propose is that given all the parameters that God has to deal with, this world as we see it is the best possible world that could, could ever be. Did I and, sum that up? Yeah, and I mean clearly the, the transition to Mormonism is, ay, 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 that's complicated for the Mormon God. Yeah, we're going to come back to that at the end. Um, actually, Mormonism and, and Leibniz, um, they, 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 come, they come well together. Um, Although, John, yes. I don't know if this is the greatest time, but it almost seems like it's later Mormonism where it lines up more there. Whereas with Joseph Smith in the beginning, it almost seems like he and Voltaire would be buddies. You know, in the early beginning before, you know, personal revelation and kind of the democracy of worship, you know, they realized it was going to be such a power struggle. Yeah, yeah. I mean, early, early Mormonism is unremarkable theologically. If you read the Book of Mormon, there's, not, there's nothing theologically interesting in there from a Mormon perspective. And, and you're right. These ideas really start resonating more with, um, with Nauvoo Mormonism. Well, and don't you think that, and maybe I'm misinterpreted it, but the, the fact that they don't even, they don't understand evil, so they don't even think about it is kind of the way the Mormons are like, oh, I don't really understand the Book of Abraham problem, so I'm just not going to worry about it. It doesn't pertain to my salvation kind of a thing. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so the book, the book, um, um, Voltaire's primary work that he's best known for is the book Candide. Um, it was written in 1757, and it happened after the 1755 Lisbon earthquake, which was sort of a, a big deal um, because you have, um, think about like the tsunami that happened a few years ago. You know, it, it really brings a lot of theological questions. You're like, why does this have to happen? Why is there this level of suffering? And um, um, Leibniz released his work, um, Monadology, about the same time. So this book was really a response to Leibniz's philosophy, this best of all possible worlds, and some of the tragedy that was going on at the time. And, and Candide, in, in the book, goes through this journey of running into all sorts of awfulness around the world, and the question keeps coming up again about the best of all possible worlds. So um, Candide um, is a student of a character in the book called um, um, Pangloss. Is that how you say it? I, I don't know. Yes, um, Pangloss. I, I, my French is awful, so I'm not even going to try. <laughs> yeah. and, and actually, um, this optimism, um, you know, that this is the best possible world, is sometimes called Panglossiasm um, from the book, um, which, of course, Candide parodies, because as they go through the book, they keep repeating this, this refrain. And, and um, so Candide is a student of Pengloss, and they kind of journey around, and they keep talking about this being the best of all possible worlds. And I, I think one of the... Um, so there, there, there's two particular quotes from the book I'm going to read that kind of sum, sum the idea up. And the first one, they're talking about um, syphilis. <laughs> syphilis is a big um, theme in the book. And, of course, syphilis came from the New World. And the first Columbus and his crew brought syphilis back. And then it spread like wildfire through Europe. And syphilis was awful before the invention of um, penicillin. It's hard for us to, to really even grasp how terrible syphilis was. 
Um, so when you, when you have Leibniz's philosophy, this is the best of all possible worlds, you're left to ask, why syphilis? Now, asshole Christians would say it's God's um, punishment, right? But that's not what Leibniz is going after. He's saying, no, God is a loving and just God, and so why would this, this happen? So let's read the passage to explain why Columbus's crew brought syphilis back. It was a thing unavoidable, a necessary ingredient in the best of worlds. For if Columbus had not caught in an island in America this, this, this disease, which contaminates the source of generation and frequently impedes propagation itself and is evidently opposed to the great end of nature, we should have had neither chocolate nor... Um, cochineal. Cochineal, yes, thank you. So we have... we. In the best of all possible worlds, we have syphilis so that we could have chocolate. <laughs> and food dye. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's, that's just inductive reasoning at its worst. So. <laughs> it, I mean, it really is. There's no other possible reason that this happened. We needed to get syphilis in order to get chocolate. Right. And, of course, this is, this is Voltaire's mocking the, the, this idea. Uh, the, he does it uh, again in, in, in something that's quoted quite often. You'll, pr- you'll probably hear this one. Um, it is demonstrable that things cannot be otherwise than as they are. For as all things have been created for some end, they must necessarily be created for the best end. Observe, for instance, the nose is formed for spectacles. Therefore, we wear spectacles. <laughs> um, which is a common reasoning in religion, right? The, the, the human eye. They're, they're, it, it's, it's laid bare that, they, that, that religious people tend to see meaning in everything. And all of this stuff, you know, if something happens to us, if grandma gets cancer or little Johnny gets run over by a bus, well, we had something to learn, right? It's the same reasoning path to say we have noses so they can hold up our spectacles, right? Um, and because this is the best possible thing that could ever be. God created us because he loves us. And he put us in this world because he wants us to be happy. Man's plan for happiness or God's plan for man's happiness, whatever the hell it is. Um, and, and this is how it has to be. Um, he, he sounds like an early apologist. Absolutely. <laughs> That's what I was just thinking. This is Mormonism at perfect. Um, so, so Voltaire also sees religion as corrupt. And, you know, he, he's satirizing these characters throughout. And, and for example, the, he encounters the daughter of the Pope, right? The Pope's supposed to be celibate. Um, the, um, the mistress of the Catholic Inquisitor um, makes, an, makes an appear. The um, Franciscan fr- friar, who is a jewel thief. Of course, Franciscans have a vow of um, poverty. Um, and um, the Jesuit colony, um, Voltaire implies they're all homosexuals. Um, so, so, and, and all these religious people are carrying out these inhumane campaigns the whole time. I mean, they're punishing um, Candide and um, Pangloss just for their ideas. And, and a, a reoccurring theme throughout this is that, that Voltaire excellently points out is the utter hatred that the society has for the sexuality of women that women are put up on this pedestal, that their, their value is completely in their chastity. But everything's happening all the time to take that, that away, but then the women are, are not valued anymore because the only thing that they have value for is this, ch- this chasteness. 
This was 250 years ago? <laughs> yeah, 250 years ago. <laughs> well, yeah. And actually, a lot of their power is, of course, what they're allowed in their sexuality because their power is through the men who influence them, which is interesting because, of course, um, Candide's love interest, she is kind of goes from male to male throughout the story and basically survives through the power of that male. Um, and, and she really is doesn't have a lot of personality. Um, vapid, I guess, a vapid beauty. Yeah, she, had, she takes on the personality of the men that she's with and, and totally changes every time. Yeah, because the men, the men value her for her chastity and not all the female characters by extension, but they do everything they can to prevent her from being chaste. Right. Um, which, which to Voltaire, I mean, it's, it's, it's a direct commentary on the sexuality of, of, of the time, but also on how the church itself is structuring everything. That the church and, and religion sets up this standard, but then will do everything to make sure you, you can't get it. You can't get there. You have to be chaste, but there's no way possible for you to be chaste because the church is not going to allow you to be chaste. Society is not going to allow that. Oh, sorry. I got nothing, John. I was waiting, I was waiting for brilliance. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, and he, Voltaire also takes a swipe at, at money, of course, because they, they, they travel to the New World and go to El Dorado. Um, and this should be this utopian place, but it's, but it's not. Everything... Everything is falling apart. Every, everything keeps running into problems. And Candide himself keeps trying to repeat this frame, this refrain, that this is the best possible thing that can be. That there, there, there can't be anything better. But you start looking and saying, couldn't it be just a little bit better? Um, uh, of course, um, our friend Mr. Deity um, really parodied this well in, in, in the comedy series. If you haven't seen Mr. Deity, you should go um, check out the, the, the episodes where... God is creating the world, and he's talking to his assistant. And you know, God keeps saying, "Well, put th- this in." And the assistants, do, do we really have to have this disease? This disease, this little one right here. Can't we leave that out? And God's just like, "No, no, no, put that in." And so, so you know, the question really comes in: Is if the, this is the best of all possible worlds, you really have to have syphilis? You really have to have all the the rapiness? You really have to have mosquitoes and and all that? Can Can I read you another quote, John? Please. So this comes from uh, Doubt: A History. And I, I think that this just really summarizes very well Voltaire's position and what he's trying to say in Candide. Um, so he says, What? To be chased from a delicious place where we might have lived forever only for eating of an apple? What? To produce in misery wretched children who w- will suffer everything and in return produce others to suffer after them? What? To experience all maladies, feel all vexations, die in the midst of grief, and by way of recompense be burned to all eternity. Is this lot the best possible? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, especially for women, um, that, that I, think, I think Voltaire is progressive on, on that front. So we, we've established the idea that the, um, we have the best of all possible worlds as, as, as a solution. And, of course, the Enlightenment ridicules that idea and says the church is screwed up. This is not, this is not the best thing. So let, let's, let's, let's shift gears and talk about Mormon theology for a little bit. Um, Mormon theology began, like we mentioned in the beginning, as an outgrowth of, of Protestantism. And you can really see the progress of Joseph Smith's thinking from the Book of Mormon to, 1844, to 1842, 1844, um, with all the innovations in Nauvoo. 
where we ended up when Joseph Smith was, was martyred is we had established that God was not the creator of the universe or the pattern, that God was a participant in the system, that the system that we are all participant in predates God. Now, we've talked about in previous um, podcasts, it gets kind of fuzzy because the church has burned a lot of documents. And there's some debate um, uh, as to whether there is a great grand God named Elohim or there's a regression of gods. Most Mormons today will tell you there's an infinite regression of gods as opposed to a great grand creator. But let's put that philosophical question aside and let's talk about our God. Because that's who we're dealing with in Mormon theology, our God. And the question is, why does our God do what our God does? And the answer is not because God wills it. For Mormonism... God doesn't really have a will. For the same problem reversed that Voltaire is mocking, it's the paradox of God. And I know I've, I've brought it up before, but let's walk through it. God can see the, the outcomes of, of his actions. Okay? So God can see down the line. He can see how things are going to play out. And let's assume that in any given choice, one of them is better than the other. Alma would lead us to believe that God has to choose the better choice or he ceases to become God. And in infinite mathematical cycles, a small degree of difference compounds to an infinite degree of difference. So even what would seem like very insignificant decisions to you and I, to God on an infinite time scale, those things are infinitely different. So the small choice becomes one of enormous proportion. So God himself, on achieving godhood and omniscience, has lost free will. God ha- cannot, he always has his choice dictated to him. Okay? And this pattern was dictated to him also. God couldn't choose this. But then you must ask and say, why this pattern? Why are things the way they are? And we see in the temple, that what, what, does, what does Lucifer respond with when God catches him Telling the woman to eat a fruit. I'm just doing that which has been done on other worlds. That this pattern has been repeated. How dare you punish me? It's an excellent question that we have yet to hear an answer from justly. um, Because as I pointed out before, if if the devil wasn't um, a nitwit, he would have just gone into the corner and played like Angry Birds and said, fuck you, God. I'm going to screw up your whole system by doing nothing. Um, but the devil was not as smart as you and me, apparently. And um, he followed into this, this, this pattern that had been repeated. So let's put aside the normal theological question of whether God is omniscient and omnipotent. But what about this system that God is playing into, this game that God is playing? And if you're a Mormon, you become deified. You will be compelled by the loss, the loss of your own free will to, to do because remember what I just set up here. The only reason God does things is because he chooses the most correct one. So Mormonism is trapped in the Lebanese problem. Mormonism has to say that this world we live in is the best of all possible worlds. Otherwise, God would modify it. Angie, you're squinting at me. It's horrible. <laughs> like, I hate that. I mean, how is the Holocaust the best possible world? And, and how is that the best possible choice God could make? I don't know. And this is kind of uh, oh, it's such a sad statement about God. It reminds me there's this uh, 
this documentary on Netflix right now. If you haven't seen it, it's a pervert's guide to ideology. And uh, he, he, he talks about the big other. That's what he coins it. And he says that the big other is anything in the world where you think that something is omniscient enough that it knows what's going on and is controlling it. It's politics. It's religion. It can be in your own life that you just think there's some force that's keeping you safe and keeping you from dying, whatever it may be. Um, we're basically putting God into this same box, too, that he is assuming or he or she is assuming that there's a big other also that's controlling what he or she is doing and, and that he is, he's, he's pursuing down that path because it is the best thing to do, assuming that someone else knows what's going on. And it just goes on and on and on in a vicious cycle. It goes on and on and on. <laughs> and again, because if, if it wasn't the best, if, if God had gone through a system like ours and then decided to tweak it, he wouldn't have made it worse. He would have made it better. Right. So you could, you could push back on me and say, no, John, your argument that God has no free will is, is vacuous. Although I've never heard anybody give me a counter argument to it. But they say, no, God can improve. He can tinker with it. He can look at the mistakes of his God and fix them. But then you have your Holocaust problem. So we've been doing this for a bazillion years, and this is the product of, of repeat. This is, this is, this isn't, we're not in beta anymore. Like, this is product, you know, release infinite, right? So if we've been improving it generation after generation after generation of gods, this is the acme of the god evolution cycle? Really? <laughs> That's because he's focusing on helping people find their keys. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and really isn't the problem basically with human free will because they humans have to be free to make mistakes and be judged for them to earn their place in heaven, since this is the test on earth. Well, but I, I think I think that's an it's an interesting counter argument. Apologists would make it, but I think Voltaire, although although the religion of the time was not as caught up in this concept of free will as as we are now, but Voltaire, especially when he's dealing with his female characters in the book, I think really deconstructs that because to argue that these folks in here are playing out their lives with freedom of choice is really kind of ridiculous because there's all these things happening to them all the time that they don't have any control over and they're arbitrary and 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 the characters bumping into each other it's all these events happening and and you know the the the, the mormon response is say god doesn't intervene cuz he he gives us free will but he allows the dark side to intervene without any um without any repercussion. And if you read consequence, yeah. if you read Alma, Alma says, well that's because man unless man is enticed one way or the other won't do anything. According to the Book of Mormon, you'll just sit there. So God says, "All right, well let's test everybody. We know that they won't do anything unless you entice them. So we're not going to entice them to good. We're only going to entice them to bad. And then we'll select people every once in a while, and then we'll have angels appear to them and give them golden plates and give them special knowledge because then they'll act good, but all the rest of the assholes, they're they're screwed because all they have is the devil. And then we'll make sure to cover up the good so that no one can actually see and they'll 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 infer that the golden plates is actually a box of flaxseed, and then you're stuck, right? It's it, it, it kind of remind, kind of reminds me of a Clockwork Orange when uh, Malcolm McDowell has his eyes opened and all he can look at is evil, and uh-huh. so then he's repulsed by evil when he comes out the other side, and he, he he can't he can't help himself but not commit evil acts. For, I mean, is that what we're trying to accomplish here? Oh, absolutely. I I, I think so. I, I don't I don't know. I don't. It doesn't. I oh, so God creates all these spirits. 
And let's just look at the, at the, the first estate. One third, one third the host of heaven rejects God's plan. Did God know this when he created them? Did God know, did he have enough presence of mind to understand down the line that a one out of every three kids that he was creating were going to end up eternally in a state of misery? Because what kind of being would create something that would spend all of eternity in misery? Like, you either, there's only two choices. Either, either God had absolutely no choice. He was bound to do it. He couldn't break out. Or he's a fucking asshole. Because why else would you do that? Well, and, and furthermore, let's just talk straight math. If we're talking that this is a repeating cycle, and we're talking compounding fractions, the best we've gotten is a third. We haven't gotten this thing down to like a 64th or like 128th. You know, we went from like a megabyte to like terabytes in 15 years. Yeah, God is not... exponential compounding. God is not Six Sigma on this stuff. He is, he has really got a bad record. But I, 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 would, I would think that a, a, a person of conscience wouldn't say God intentionally created spirits to fail the system. And once you say that, that God didn't intentionally create beings to become devils and to become eternally punished... You have to say that God had no choice but to create these beings and have this free will in which they will, in fact, fail the system. And if you read a lot of the church authorities, the number of people who will be saved is very tiny. And so, so, so God's creating the system where it is Six Sigma just in reverse, that it's only one out of 100,000, one out of a million that's getting saved. And everybody else is going to spend eternity as a CK smoothie, as a TK smoothie. Um, I have a question. Sure, uh, go to the mic. So, what is it? What does this mean for the, for Mormons who would say God does intervene through the enticings of the Spirit? Like, does that change? Does that change the situation? Well, so the question then is, why does God intervene through the enticings of the Spirit? Mm-hmm. Why, why that method? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think he exists. So. Well, well, I, I think I think a, a Mormon would have to. They would fall into into Leibniz's problem. They would say that's the best possible way God can do it, and then we would look at it and say, but that's ridiculous, right? But let's say Joseph Smith said, an angel gave me the golden plates, and here they are. Woo! Come, 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 look at them. You know, like. Would that really have put the Mormon Church on a on, on a death sphere, a death um, spiral? Would that really have impacted God's plan? So, I mean, there's just one way it could be tweaked to just be just a little bit better, right? Right. So you're saying that 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 what that sets us up with is a God that only intervenes in the most trivial of ways, and then doesn't intervene to end the Holocaust. And, and I would argue that. Philosophically, Mormonism is stuck in a corner where they would have to say that God has no choice but to do that. And it sets us up with an impotent God, essentially. An impotent God in, in, in a way that Mormonism solves the theodicy in a way. Because they're, they're exactly, they're saying God has no choice in the matter. God is completely bound. And it, it even says that. Doesn't Alma use that word, God is bound, in, in the Book of Mormon? But Carol. God doesn't care about the victims. See, Mormons trivialize victims because they're gone on to heaven. You know, babies that die, that's fine. They didn't have to be tested here because they'll just go on to celestial beings. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's 
fine. They're able well, to rationalize. It really didn't matter. It's all part of the big plan. Well, the, 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 the solution to the problem then is, and when you look at infant mortality rates, you have a huge number, an enormous number. If you went to Mormon heaven and did a poll, you know, you had a clicker, one out of every, most of the people would have not spent any significant amount of time on, on the earth because infant mortality rates are huge um, before, before the age of eight. So heaven is mostly populated by people who died before they ever hit the age of eight. You'd be hard-pressed to find people who actually live to adulthood. Because all the people who have to do ahead are in hell, right? Um, well, I think the last commenter brought up such a good point, though, and it's so sad. The implications are so sad, though, because you take children dying in, in infancy, and it is very comforting. I mean, no one in this room is going to say that it's not comforting to think that you'll see that child again, that you'll hold that child again, and that they will go on and live long, fruitful lives. But the whole thing falls apart and becomes very depressing when it becomes Leibniz's God, who is bound by all of these rules, and this is the best of all worlds, what, what, what certification do we have to know that that child will go on and live again? I mean, we're trusting this impotent God that everything's going to be okay after this? It's a huge conundrum. Right, and of course, I, I set aside the problem, but you do have the problem of saying... Who started this mess in the first place? <laughs> like, why this? Why doesn't some god revolt and say, this sucks. Let's just get rid of the venereal diseases and just try it once without those. Um, you know? Well, I think reason like what you were alluding to is because he can't. If he were to try to do that, he would uh, cease to be god. So it's not, you know, in the same way that if you believe in evolution... This is the best of all possible worlds because otherwise we couldn't exist. It's the laws of nature that are fucked up. The way Mormons view the universe, it's the universal laws that exist. God has to follow. He can't change them or it ceases to be God. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think you're right that Mormons would say that. But Mormons are left with a conundrum of explaining where the universal laws come from. That's true. And, and, and of late, the, the as they try to pony up to... Um, Protestants, they keep they, they're they're taking on the language of of modern um, Protestantism. Brigham Young would spin in his grave to hear you talk about um, an omniscient, omnipotent God. Yeah. No, I think that's true, and I think in a sense that Mormons worship a set of rules, like scientific rules, more than a God. They you know they worship the God that happens to follow the rules, but it's the rules that are calling the shots. Well, their solution, and I didn't want to dig too deep into Leibniz, which probably was not fair, but, but um, Leibniz would argue that we don't understand things. And, and you'll hear this reasoning come from Mormons quite a bit, that we have, we have our mortal minds, and we, we cannot understand why there had to be a holocaust. It, it looks to be unjust to you, but that's just because you're with your own little mortal mind. And so when we talk about the best of all possible worlds, we have to understand that, that this is coming from a being that is infinitely more intelligent than us and that it'll all work out in the end. Blah, 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 blah. And I think that's, what, that's partly what, what um, Leibniz would argue for. Um, yeah, the, 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 here's the wording I have. That God is unlimited in wisdom and power. His human creations, his creations are limited both in their wisdom and in their will. Um, and this predisposes humans to false belief, wrong decisions, and ineffective actions of their free will. 
And if you look at the paragraph we talked about in the news that you, you so eloquently alluded to, that's exactly what the church is saying, right? Let's go back to that paragraph. They can't, the, veracity, the, veracity, the veracity of the value of the book of Abraham cannot be settled by scholarly debate because you're a worm and you don't understand these things. <laughs> and the idea that Joseph Smith translated Egyptian and we can read the Egyptian today and doesn't make any sense, that's just because you come from a flawed thing. You come from a flawed understanding. And a perfect being would understand that you can, in fact, translate Abrahamic um, language from a funerary script 2,000 years later. Yeah, I mean, Isaiah, he summarized it the, 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 the best. And forgive me, I, I'm not versed on my scripture anymore, but it's he said God's ways are, are, are not our ways. And I, I remember that just yes. being such a, comfor- a comforting thought and feeling when I was a missionary and you would you'd find something that you had to throw on the shelf and you would always, that quote would run through your mind. Well, I'll, I'll understand it later because his ways are above my ways. Yeah. Um, One thing I want to add about the kind of explanation of evil in Mormonism um, that I put across from this idea of um, the theodicy and Leibniz is the idea of opposition in all things. I mean, from like scripture chase. So the idea that you have to have this evil in order for the opposite to exist. And so drumming that in. And then it seems like... um, this idea, too, I know once when I was pondering how this horrible thing could happen uh, to a friend and her, and her innocent children, and I stayed up all night and it came to me, and I found the scripture. And like you said, I'm not into scriptures anymore either, but basically the point was um, that that's allowed uh, so that the innocent will stand as witnesses during the judgment to God for those who have committed evil. And I know that's really pitiful, but that's the best I could come up with from the Book of Mormon. Well, and this, this is the brilliance of Candide, because Candide shows that the system is ridiculous. And oftentimes when you take these responses, these religious constructions, and you can show them to be patently ridiculous by just applying them somewhere else, right? So let's take that idea of the opposition of all things and apply it to a, a university that's teaching physics. So they have two sets of classes, one that are false that are teaching you the wrong physics and another are teaching you the right physics. And they say, we can't have students just learning the way things actually are because then they won't be able to choose. They won't be able to understand physics, right? Because they have to be taught wrong equations and then right equations so that they can then figure out which ones are right and which are wrong. This, this idea is, is ridiculous, right? It doesn't make... Because if you go through physics, you'll be able to build on... The, the, the things you learn as a freshman and you'll, be, you'll construct the proofs and you'll go back to them over and over and over again and you'll reinforce that. This is why you never go to a senior level physics class and have people get up and say, I want to bear you my testimony that the fundamental laws of the universe are true because it's given, it's been proven a bazillion times and they don't have to do that. And that you don't have to have opposition. You don't have to have this graduating class where the innocent come up and say, he fell for the wrong equations and he doesn't get his degree that's not it's that's not the way it works and that and that's what candide is showing that that this these ideas of god intervening in this world making things good is 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 such a lousy idea because syphilis because syphilis right it's a terrible thing and it doesn't have to be there and and as people respond to it and throw other people in prison and it's it's just it it doesn't it doesn't get um 
it, it doesn't deserve the free pass that we give it. That's what I'm trying to say. So I have said before that Mormonism was disproven before Mormonism was ever born, and this is the kind of thing I'm talking about. That, that unfortunately, Joseph Smith, I think, didn't fully understand the, the, the milieu in which he was born. And unfortunately, also, a lot of Americans still, to this day, you know, talk about these guys, these, these philosophers from the Enlightenment on which our society was built and completely misunderstand it. And it's really unfortunate. It's not just a Mormon thing. This is, this is all over. Um, and it, it's, it's really unfortunate. And that's why um, I think it's important to understand these ideas. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, when we were just talking about, uh, about opposition, and there must be opposition in all things, uh, you know, the, the, the thought occurred to me, the only thing that we need, or at least... I, I should speak for myself, but the only thing that I need for myself that is an opposition to anything is just the ability to to choose otherwise. It, it doesn't have to be one concrete thing that is that option, but just the ability to choose something else. Right. And I think that comes into doubt, which was one of Voltaire's one of the, one, one of his his hottest topics that he would always discuss is the need to to, to stick to doubt and to be able to doubt all things, and nothing is is too righteous or too pure to to avoid the altar of truth. Well, and and the need, I think, overall, when we look at Voltaire and society, the need for agitation, the need for satire, and you can tell when an organization has gotten really unhealthy because there will be no space, no discourse of any sort of criticism whatsoever. Um, and and when we get to the position that this isn't new, like. The, the Kate Kelly sort of thing, this happens every 10 years, and it has always happened every 10 years. And, and I know there's a lot of people, because it's happening now in the present, that like to see this as a new, something's happening in the church. Now, this has happened over and over and over again. The church does not tolerate a certain kind of dissent, and especially dissent from the inside. The reason the church excommunicates people like Kate Kelly and leaves people like me alone is I'm on the outside. Um, I've resigned too, but I, I was agitating plenty before that. Um, and they don't care. They, 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 they don't want people who question what's happening internally. And this cycle will keep repeating um, for a long time. There's nothing new here. I, you know, and, and this, uh, it's, uh, as, as I was studying up on this, you talk about this one topic over and over and over, John, where you say, You'll get to a point where you're trying to, to talk about the church, and you're trying to give them the benefit of the doubt, and then you say, oh, but what am I talking about? I just want the whole thing to burn to the ground. <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, and, and Voltaire, he said that about the churches of his time because he was constantly being surrounded by people who were being treated and, and who were being punished by social injustices, and he would try to, 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 to skirt the middle ground or to, to, to walk down the middle road, but then he would come to the same conclusion and say, we just got to burn this whole thing to the ground. If this is what it's going to produce, and this is what it's going to do to people, if this is going to go on for hundreds and hundreds of years and rear its ugly head every ten years, it should burn to the ground. The the Voltaire's um, tension in his writing between wanting tolerance and tolerance of ideas 
and his disdain for religion really resonates with me quite quite a bit, um, which is probably one of the reasons I, I selected this because yeah he, you can see and you can put Voltaire quotes back to back where he sometimes seems to be very anti religion and other times very tolerant of it but I, I think that the tension is we don't want institutions telling individuals how to think. And I've tried to bring this up before. When I attack the church, I'm attacking the institution as opposed to the individuals. And I tend to be, believe it or not, fairly tolerant of people in their individual belief. It's the institutions that that are problematic. And when Voltaire and and the Enlightenment writers are looking at separation of church and state and the idea of freedom of speech and the idea of freedom of religion... They're not trying to create an environment where Mormonism and Pentecostalism and Jehovah Witnesses can just ride ripshot over its society. They're trying to create an environment where the churches themselves don't have very much power, but an individual also has the maximized freedom of thought and individuality. Liberty, equality, fraternity. Right, right. Definitely. Okay, well, I think, I think we've done an okay job of um, introducing you to Voltaire. I'll take the last few minutes to talk a little bit about some things going on um, with uh, Whitefields. I can... I can well, we're looking for some some uh, some good people. We're building up, um, of course, Whitefield's merch with um, Post Mormon. We're building up that network. So individuals who are out there who want to help us um, get our local network set up, um, please contact us. We are um, looking for locally in Salt Lake City. You need to be local, um, but we are looking for a director of animation, um, somebody who has experience doing um, um, a- um, animation in a studio. We're, um, we're going to be setting up an animation studio. So if you have work with film or South Park-esque puppetry um, and um, you have a passion for that thing um, then um, and some experience, please contact me because we're looking for somebody who will help us on that direction. I'll just leave that as a teaser out there floating in the air. Um, Robin, Angie, Adam? Yeah, I'd like to give a um, Voltaire shout-out to all the awesome single people in the podcast community and um, one of my favorite quotes is marriage is the only adventure open to the cowardly so <laughs> <laughs> go us <laughs> and uh, we, we yes next time let's talk about the book I think it was a lot more interesting than Mormonism <laughs> talk about which book Candide well you were sitting here all the for an hour <laughs> I guess I have to get used to interrupting you all right um Thank you for my wonderful panel and the studio audience. Uh, <laughs> Mormon Expression is a production of the Whitefields Educational Foundation. To find out more, visit whitefieldseducational.org. To find out about counseling services or the other initiatives, Mormon Expression is recorded live on Tuesday nights at 6.30. Come down and join us for a recording. Meet John, take part in the conversation, and meet our panelists.